you got one of those handouts inside of that is that blue connection card. If you're a first-time guest with us, you'll notice that the rest of our church family, sometime during our worship gathering, they will be filling that out. They usually just fill up the top portion and then on the back side put prayer requests or they'll sign up for various things. But if you are willing to fill out the whole front of that, we are going to donate $5 on your behalf to Compassion International. Uh, Compassion International has a goal to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. And so we would love to support them. And so to say thank you for coming, we would love to donate $5 on your behalf. So if you're willing to fill that out and then drop that in the giving bag that will be passed later uh, in the worship gathering, uh, we would say thank you for doing that and uh, helping us to support and, and help kids. Well, that song that we just sang, Blessed Assurance, it it reminds me that there is a longing inside of humanity for peace. We long to know that everything is going to be okay. You know, I don't know about you, but I'll see a movie or, or a TV show and something tragic has just happened. And yet someone is there and they're trying to comfort them. And so they'll say things like, it's okay, it's okay, it's gonna be okay, even when it's not okay, because there's something in us that longs for assurance. Last Sunday night, Leanne and I, and I think Megan joined us, we watched the movie Arrival. Anyone here seen Arrival? Okay, uh, one. All right, great. Okay, I highly recommend this movie. I absolutely loved it. Now, I'm going to put a couple disclaimers on that, though. First, you got to like thinking movies, all right? This, this one's a little bit of a thinker, all right? And if you're the type of person who falls asleep during movies, don't even bother, all right? You will be out in like 10 minutes. Yes, Jody, all right? You will be just zonked within no time at all. This movie moves slow. But after you get going, you start figuring out why it moves slow. It's actually very deliberate on the director's part. It's not that he just wants you to be in awe of the photography, which is still very, very good. But there's a purpose behind it. It actually feeds into the message of the movie. Now, I don't want to tell you too much about it because this movie is better experienced with being a little bit of a blank slate. But here's what I will tell you. The movie is about 12 spaceships that show up on Earth and they are positioned all around the globe. This, of course, causes a bit of mass hysteria. People start to panic. They want to be assured that everything is okay. And so these various governments, these various countries, start trying to find different experts to help them figure out why are the aliens here. And so in America, one of the ships has landed out in Montana. And so they find this linguist to come to Montana and begin trying to figure out what is it that they want? What is their purpose? Because there's these 12 ships all around the globe, it makes sense that these 12 countries would start to like share the data that they're learning. And, and so there's, a, there's one scene where there's a big monitor and you can see all these different countries and you hear reports coming in and you see a room full of translators and they're translating what the different countries are saying and they're gathering this data together. But then something happens and one of the countries panics and they decide We're not sharing our information anymore, and we don't want to know anything else. And they actually go dark. And once they go dark, another country panics, and they go dark. And then another, and another. And eventually, all 12 countries shut off and pull away. What that scene shows is that when communication is strong, unity is strong. But when there is a breakdown in communication, 
disunity reigns. Now, sometimes a breakdown in communication can actually lead to funny moments. I I remember my freshman year of high school being in Spanish 1, and my Spanish teacher, she had a philosophy that the sooner you could start speaking the language, the faster you would learn it. And so we would have to do various exercises, like go up in front of the class and have a conversation in Spanish with our teacher, to the embarrassment of all of us. One day, Bobby, who was a year older than me, Bobby was a super tall kid. Well, everyone's tall compared to me. But Bobby was really tall. And, and he gets up front. He's just, he's funny. He, he just had a big personality. He was just a big goofball. And he gets up there and he's trying to hold this conversation in Spanish with our teacher. And all of a sudden, he's trying to say, I'm embarrassed or, or something along those lines. But all of a sudden, as he says, I'm embarrassed, our teacher starts to giggle. And she realizes this is inappropriate. She, can't, she shouldn't laugh at a student. So she tries to stifle it. But she can't help it. The more she tries to stifle it, the more the laughs wanting to come. And Bobby's kind of self-conscious. He just blurts out in English, what did I say? And she just finally busts out. She just says, you just said you're pregnant. Whole class just did what you did. They just, they laughed and that. And Bobby turns red and he starts making more jokes. Sometimes a breakdown in communication is actually funny. But if you're in a marriage and there's a breakdown in communication, it's not so funny, is it? I remember about 15 years ago, a young couple approached me asking me to uh, do some marriage counseling with them. And they both worked during the day, so we had to find an evening time. And it was just easiest to come over to, to our house. So we went to our house, went down into the basement. And uh, I naturally started asking questions, you know, trying to figure out what's going on and how I can best help them. And uh, pretty soon, one of them's sharing, you know, how they see things. And the other one begins to disagree. And the other one comes back at it. And pretty soon, it's escalating. And the volume's going up. The disrespect is going up. Pretty soon, they're yelling at each other to the point that the, the wife just stands up and starts storming out of the basement. And she only came back because I said, hey, hang on, come back here. If her husband had said, hey, don't leave, come back, I don't think she would have. She was so upset at him in that moment. But the look on his face was just like, let her go. I don't care. There had been such a breakdown in communication that disunity was reigning in their marriage. I think all of us not only long for assurance, I think each of us longs for unity. I think we want to know that no matter where we're at or what we're a part of, that we belong. We we want unity in our marriage if we are married. We want unity in our church if if this is your church. You, You want unity at work. You want unity with God. You even want unity with yourself. And when communication is strong, unity is strong. When there's a breakdown in communication, disunity reigns. Today, we are going to see that so clearly. We're going to see that when the communication is strong, it's amazing what's being done. But when we, see some dis- when we see a breakdown in communication begin, disunity is going to reign. Now, here's the troubling thing. God is the one who's going to bring the disunity. But there's a reason behind it. It's actually because he loves these people and he has a broader purpose. But never fear Because God actually has a response and an answer to the disunity that he brings in. So Father, I just pray right now, you would help each of us to be in tune with you. That right now we would have unity with your spirit.
Because some of us in this room need to hear this message. Whether it be because there's a disunity going on in a, in a marriage or a, a disunity going on in a friendship at school or at work. It, it, maybe there's some disunity going on even within our own hearts. And today, you're going to help us just take another step closer to you and begin to find some unity. So would you open up Genesis 11 to us and Acts 2? Would you help us to see your heart, your love, your purpose and would actually draw us to you, and we would walk out today just feeling a little more unified with our Creator. So teach us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you've got a Bible or Bible app on your phone, open it up to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11. If you are a first-time visitor with us, phones are totally welcome. If you do not have a Bible on your phone, we encourage you to download one to it. If you're like me and want to go retro, uh, we've got paper copies back on the give and grow table. You'll notice some of our church family sometimes walks in, picks one of those up, and uses it during the service. If you do not own a Bible, we would love for you to have one of those. Please, just take it. It's our, our gift to you. We would love for that to be your everyday Bible. We've got two different translations. If you don't know which one would fit you best, we'd love to have a conversation and get the one that will help you in following Jesus. So Genesis 11, we're going to do verses 1 through 9. We're going to do the whole story of the Tower of Babel. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So what we have here is a group of people who decide to build a city, God somehow takes great offense at it, and so he plays a little prank and confuses their language. All right, that's what we've got, isn't it? Well, not exactly. There's more going on here than what it looks like on the surface. On the surface, it looks like God is being anti-human. Like, like he's just a trickster. He's being a little mean. But if you go back and start re-listening to the messages and, and looking at what we've already talked about in this His Story series, you start catching on, God is not anti-human. God is very pro-human. I mean, God created humans in his image. He put will and intellect and personality and emotions. I mean, he packed humanity full of himself. And the idea that humans would live like Jesus would one day live and love like Jesus would love, they were supposed to be like God. But we saw that Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They ate of the forbidden fruit and when sin entered the picture, it didn't just affect Adam and Eve and their relationship with God. It infected everything. Now, God had warned Adam, if you eat of this fruit, you will die. 
The penalty for sin was death. But we saw God, because he's pro-human, did not kill Adam and Eve immediately. He showed mercy to them. We saw that same mercy to Cain. We saw that mercy to Noah. We've seen God give mercy. So God is very pro-human. So that means there's something else going on here. God is not just trying to pull some YouTube prank and and get a laugh and confusing their language. What is going on? Well, there's actually two reasons why God is confusing their language. And the reasons are actually found in the very words of the people themselves. Because the words of the people reveal their heart. And that heart shows these people are actually anti-God. So look at it. It's in verse 4. Chapter 11, verse 4. Then they, the people of Babel, said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. That's the first thing. They want to make a name for themselves. This is about fame. They want to be famous. Think back to last week when we looked at the story of Noah. Noah walks out with his family from the ark after being inside that thing for a year and 10 days, sees the land, and he wants to build. And what is it that he builds? An altar. And upon that altar, he sacrifices some animals in worship to God. He's giving God the glory and thanking him for bringing him and his family and all of these animals through the flood. So he builds to give glory. But now, like, I don't know, four, five, six generations later, the people are kind of traveling. They come to this plain and they see the land and they too want to build. But rather than build something that gives glory to God, they build something to try and give glory to themselves. They're in a sense trying to steal God's glory. Back in 2003, uh, Carmelo Anthony was one of the hottest prospects uh, in NBA basketball. He was coming out of college. He had just done his freshman year at Syracuse University. And as a freshman, some 18, 19-year-old, he led them to the national championship game where they won. He then declares for the NBA draft and ends up going third in the draft. Well, ESPN, every year, they have this big awards event called the ESPYs. And they award all these different sports-related prizes. You know, like most inspirational, greatest comeback, male athlete of the year, female athlete of the year. I mean, they, there's so many. Well, in that year, 2003, they named Carmelo Anthony the 2003 College Male Athlete of the Year. He begins to make his way onto the stage. And we've all heard these acceptance speeches. Whether it's when they win MVP or, you know, they've had a great game. What, what did they sort of say? That typically, it's like, oh, I, I want to thank my fans for supporting me, my, my family for always being there with me. I want to thank my coaches for all they've invested in me. I want to thank my teammates. Some of them even will say, I want to thank God. But not Carmelo. Carmelo gets up there, holds this prize, and says, well, the first person I'd like to thank is myself uh, because I've worked really, really hard, and I deserve this. If you go online into Google, just start typing Carmelo Anthony Espy, you'll see it start to fill out the rest. Thanks himself. He's famous for this. The people of Babel were the Carmelo Anthonys of their day. Maybe they were very skilled. I mean, they knew how to make bricks. In fact, this is funny. This is a total side note. In the Hebrew, where it says, let us make bricks, it actually says, let us brick bricks. I don't know why that made me laugh, but let us brick bricks. They were really good at this. They make these bricks. And they also had some good architects. 
They start putting together a plan to not just build a city, but to build a tower. And this is going to have to be one massive tower. They want it to go way up into the sky. And so they're starting to put it together. They obviously had some intellect. But they were like Carmelo. They wanted to get the glory for themselves. The problem is, the only person who truly deserves glory is God. In Revelation 4, 11, it says this. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The people of Babel, they're creating, but they can't just make bricks out of nothing. They, they got to start with something. They're going to brick bricks. But when God creates, he just says, I want some stars. And out of nothingness come stars. I, I, I want to create plants. And there they are. And then just even with a word, he says, let us make humans. Let us make them in our image. And there they are. And so any skill, any talent, any accomplishment that you've done, it's because God put in you these skills and these talents. And so, you, yeah, you could get, receive a little bit of glory for what you've done, but ultimately, you should be taking that glory and giving it to God because he's the one who made you. And so anything you do should be pointing to him. But that's not what the people of Babel do. They try to take the glory. They're stealing it for themselves. And so God says, all right, I'm going to have to put a stop to this. So that's the first reason. The second reason is there in uh, verse 4, the second half of it. Right after they say, let us make a name for ourselves, it says, let lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, why would that be offensive to God? Well, because it is in direct opposition to what he's already told humanity. Back in Genesis chapter 1, when he creates Adam and Eve, the first thing God says to them, if I can get my page to open, first thing he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then, after Noah and his family walk off the boat, Genesis 9, which we saw last week, the, one of the first things he says to them is, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And just in case they aren't clear, he says it one more time in verse 7. Be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Three times he's told humanity, here's what I want you to do. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And yet these people are saying, you know what? Let's build a city. Let's build a huge tower to make a name for ourselves. And so we can just stay right here. We don't want to obey God. Parents, have you ever had your child involved in something? Like for us, it, it's video games. And, and they get so wrapped up in the video game. And, and you'll say, hey, um, I need you to push pause. I need you to come do something. And like, okay, yeah, uh, let me just finish this level. I'll be there you know, in like 10 seconds. Okay. Five minutes later, they still haven't shown. So you go back. They're still playing their video game. You say, hey, buddy, I need you to stop. All right? You got, I need you to come and do this. Oh, okay, okay, I'll, I'll be there. Five minutes later, they're still not there. You walk in, they're still playing video games. What do you do? Do you just say, ah, you know what, no big deal. Let, let them just continue. No, if you're a good parent, you realize 
This child needs to learn obedience. They need to learn submission. One day they're going to have a job. They're going to have a boss who's saying, I need you to go do this. And if they want to keep that job, they've got to learn how to do it. So this is part of their training. This is part of their character. They need to listen and obey. So what do you do? You interrupt. You walk in and you turn the TV off. You take away the video game. Maybe you take it away for a whole week. You do something to get their attention. God three times has told humans, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And they're not doing it. And so God interrupts. Now, we already saw last week, God has the power to kill humanity. He is the only one who has the right. Because he created humans, he's the only one who has the right to take away humans. But he doesn't do that here. He doesn't send a fireball to smash the city, wipe them all off. He's already promised he's not going to bring another flood. He doesn't kill them off. He decides, I'm going to accomplish my mission, so let's confuse their language. Because if there's a breakdown in communication, disunity will reign and the project can't be completed. So he actually shows mercy and just says, all right, different languages, you guys can't complete it. Now you'll get into the family groups that can converse with each other and you'll spread out and you'll continue to accomplish what I've set out to accomplish. Now, strangely enough, right here is where I begin to see Jesus. Because first, notice in verse 7, it's God who says, so come, let us. Again, remember when God made Adam and Eve, we saw that it was the triune God. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit saying, let us together go and make mankind. So here it's God saying, come, let us, this triune God. That means Jesus was right there. Jesus is the one who confused their language. But do you remember when we studied Genesis 3 and we saw that sin infected everything? God had a response. The response to sin was the cross. Jesus came to die on the cross for the forgiveness of sin. God responded. He undid it. He reversed it. Well, the same thing is happening here. There is a response. God is actually doing a reversal. And the reversal happens in Acts chapter 2. So if you know where Acts is, Acts chapter 2, Go ahead and turn there. If you don't know, I've got the scripture on the screen. But Acts chapter 2. Let me set the stage. Jesus has died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. And he's now spent about 40 days with his guys, all right, his, his followers. And he's kind of explaining more to them about the kingdom of God. And they're just in awe. They saw this guy die on a cross, and now he's alive within them. They, they've seen the wounds, and yet he's, he's perfectly healthy. He's good. They're in awe. And then one day Jesus says, all right, guys, come on. Come out outside the city. And they they go up on top of this hill. And Jesus starts saying, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. But, But don't leave Jerusalem yet. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when he does, he will empower you to go and be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so this is where we pick it up in chapter two. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, the Jesus followers, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the Jewish people are celebrating this event called Pentecost. 
It means that Jews from all over the known world have come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And so you've got a bunch of people there, and that means the day off. No work, you get to party. And so the Jesus followers are taking this opportunity to get together, to worship Jesus. Maybe some of them have been studying the Old Testament scriptures and they can't wait to share with everyone else what they've been learning. They're going to sing some songs together. They're going to enjoy maybe communion. They're going to celebrate the feast together because they are now Jesus followers. And then suddenly this rushing wind sound comes in. These tongues of flame begin to settle on each one of them. And they can't help it. They start talking about God in these unknown languages. And just so you don't think they're like making a bunch of stuff up and it's a bunch of gibberish, notice what happens next. Verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. All right, so they're in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, I'm sorry, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Could you imagine? You've come a long way. You come into Jerusalem, and you're there for this feast. And suddenly you hear some, it sounds like a jet engine right in the middle of the town. And you're probably thinking to yourself, wait, jets aren't invented yet. So, So what was that? And so you rush to try and figure out the sound. And as you come in, you suddenly hear a bunch of people talking. And you start looking by the way they're dressed, maybe by their accent. You start going, wait, wait, these guys are from Galilee. Galilee is where Jesus grew up. He grew up in a town known as Nazareth. It was in the Galilean region. He, he then spent a lot of time in another city. And he was in Galilee. Galilee was known as being rural. It was known as being more uneducated, I mean, uh, less educated, more uneducated. And, and so the people of Galilee, they just weren't like looked up to quite the same as maybe someone from Jerusalem and, and Judea, where maybe they received more school. This means that the people from Galilee probably only spoke one language and had a, a working knowledge of maybe two others. They, they probably knew a little bit of Hebrew because Hebrew was part of the you know, Jewish culture. But they also knew Koine Greek, which was kind of the trade language of the day, kind of like English is in our day and age. So they probably knew some Greek. We, we know that uh, Jesus and Paul both quote from the Septuagint, and that was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But their primary language would have been Aramaic. That would have been what they would know. And that would have been about it. Now, they're in the Roman Empire, so maybe, just maybe, one or two of them knows a bit of Latin. But, I mean, you look at that list, Egyptian? There's no way anyone from Galilee would know Egyptian. I mean, there's people from parts of Arab. So maybe some sort of Arabian-type language. How in the world do these guys know this? It's a miracle. God is empowering them to speak in these languages. And we know they were real languages because it was imparting directly into hearts. If you've ever walked into a room where everyone's talking at once, it just sounds like absolute noise. But suddenly you get close enough and you can hear one. 
and it sticks out and it stands out. Imagine you walk into a room where everyone is of different nationality. They're all talking in different languages and suddenly you hear English. It would stand out. About 20 years ago, I got invited by my father-in-law to a men's breakfast at his church. The uh, speaker was a missionary who, would, who uh, did radio work. Uh, he was on, I forget what islands, they were out in the Pacific Ocean. And they would broadcast shortwave radio signals into all of these countries. And so that meant they would have to do various languages. And so Nate was his name. Nate would go into the studio and he'd have to, at certain times, queue up the next program and then broadcast it into these countries. And they had certain times that different languages would be broadcast. Thing was, Nate didn't know any of these languages. He was a radio guy. He, he knew how to put it on and broadcast it out, but he couldn't understand a lick of it. Well, he, sometimes he said he would just start surfing the shortwave radio. He just wanted to know, like, what, what's out there? He'd, he'd go along, and because of their proximity to South America, they could hear Spanish. And, you know, they were kind of near the Philippines and, and then maybe some Japanese. I mean, they would hear a lot of different languages. But he said one day he's going along, all of a sudden he stops because he hears English. And, and he said it wasn't British English. It wasn't Australian English. I mean, it was American English. And he says that it even was like with a Midwestern accent. Now, it was ESPN. It was sports. The guy was sharing scores, and Nate said he doesn't care a lick about sports. He said the guy may have well have been reading hog futures. I mean, it was so uninteresting to him. And yet Nate said he began to choke up and tear up. He kind of stops, like, why am I crying at football scores? Because it was his heart language. That's what's happening there in Acts 2. They hear all this cacophony, this noise, and suddenly they hear their heart language. And what is being said in their heart language? It's right there, verse, what is it, verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. There it is. There's the reversal. The, the people back in Babel, they were trying to get glory for themselves, and so thus God changed their language. And now here, God is giving them the languages to bring glory to God. He's reversing it. And now it's bringing this unity. If you continue reading through Acts 2, you see Peter stand up and he begins preaching a sermon. And all these people are listening in. And that sermon basically says, we saw Jesus die on the cross for the forgiveness of sin. And I now invite you to follow the risen Messiah. And 3,000 of these Jews who heard that sermon responded and joined the church, it brought incredible unity because of this Holy Spirit. Which means if you are a follower of Jesus, you should be experiencing unity. How so? Ephesians 1, 13 says this. In him, in Christ, you also... When you heard the word of truth, right? In other words, you hear the story about Jesus. You hear this gospel, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him. What happened? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The same spirit that empowered these disciples to speak in these unknown languages is the same spirit that now resides in you. Paul says it another way in the book of Romans. says the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in you. If you follow Jesus, you have the spirit. 
And that spirit should bring unity. In fact, Paul, in the same letter, the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, he says this, I therefore, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, he was in prison in Rome, he's writing this letter to them. Here's what he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In other words, saying God called you. He opened your eyes to this story about Jesus. You've accepted this. So now walk in a manner worthy of that calling. How? Verse 2, with all humility, which means thinking of others more than yourself, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To follow Jesus means we live in unity. And just in case it wasn't clear, he goes on, verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. God is a God of unity. And he wants you to be in unity with him. He wants you to be in unity with others. And he wants you to be in unity with yourself. Which means that if you are a follower of Jesus and you are not experiencing unity, then go back to Christ. Go back to Jesus. Why are you not experiencing this unity? If you're not experiencing unity with God, go back to the story. Go back to Jesus. Realize that Jesus has died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin. So from God's perspective, you're forgiven. So God's arms are open. Come on in. Which means that there's probably something on your end. Are you letting that addiction get you? Are you letting laziness just kind of hold you back? Are you just kind of building your own tower for your own fame, for your own comfort? Because those towers, as great as they look, they lead to unrest. They lead to unassurance. But if you will allow God to tear down your tower and your life be about him, you experience this unity with your creator and there is joy there. If you're not experiencing unity with others, maybe it's because they're not a follower of Jesus themselves. If so, then be Jesus to them. Love them. Serve them. Give up your life for them with humility, with gentleness, with patience. Interact with them. Who knows? You might see them place their faith in Jesus, and it'll be because they saw Jesus in you. And if they are a Jesus follower, you can hope and pray and expect the Holy Spirit to repair the relationship. And you can experience unity again. If you're attacking, you're, build, you're building towers. You're making it all about you. But if you are humbly laying it down, you're giving God the glory and you're giving him the room to work. But then also, you should experience unity within yourself. If you're building those towers, it means you're making it about you. You're seeking your own comfort. You're seeking your own fame. I tell my kids repeatedly that the quickest way to unhappiness is selfishness. Selfishness is such a lie. It promises all these great things that if we just engage in this for ourselves, we'll get this and that. We'll have comfort and joy and happiness. And, you know, sometimes, yeah, there is. 
I, I get to sit down and watch a movie like a rival with my wife. That was fun. That was enjoyment. But if I give in to selfishness and I watch a movie every single day, I make it about me. And then I'll grumble and complain when one of my kids won't let me watch my movie because they need help with their homework. Because I'm making the tower about me. But if I'm willing to let the tower be torn down, let it not be about my life, I start serving my kids. I start giving my life to my wife. I start giving it about these things. I will not only discover unity with my God and unity with others, I'll discover this unity with myself. And I'll have comfort and peace in just who God has made me. And I can worship him freely. So if you're not experiencing unity, my advice is turn to Jesus. If you are just having this sense of unrest, if you just don't feel assured about life, go back to the gospel. I had a phone call on Monday with a a friend. Apparently his church is going through a lot of change. And it's creating a lot of unrest. And he's saying there is not much unity within our church. I found myself at a loss of what to say. (laughs) So the only thing I felt like I could say is what I'm going to tell you. Be Jesus-centered. You can only do what's on your part. But if you seek after Jesus, he's the one who puts his Holy Spirit in you. And that Holy Spirit is what gives you unity with your God, with others, and with yourself. If you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus yet, and right now you sense God calling you to himself, I want to invite you Give your life to him. Fall at the feet of Jesus in your heart and proclaim him as God because there's one Lord, one God, one faith. And he's saying, you're mine. I love you. Come. If anything, I hope that today you walk out of here at least with unity with your God. I can't promise you that everything's going to be fixed in that work relationship. I'm not going to promise you that you're going to suddenly get along with your parents better or your spouse. I can't promise you all those things. But I can tell you there's a God who loves you. And he wants unity with you. And he's already done everything he needs to do on his end. He's paid for your sin. He offers his Holy Spirit. So that's why I invite you. Give your life to Jesus. Become his follower. Allow his Holy Spirit to come in and to lead you and guide you so that you can love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. If you are already a Jesus follower and you're just feeling some of that disconnect, you know what to do. Come back to Jesus. Just in your heart, fall on your knees and return to him and realize his incredible love for you. Father, I just pray right now as we come to the communion table, that this would be a moment of healing for anyone here that's experiencing a lack of unity. May they realize that you have communicated on your end your incredible love and grace towards us. Our sin is forgiven through the cross. Jesus rose again from the dead so we could follow a risen Savior. And so as we eat of the bread and drink of the juice, we do it in remembrance of you realizing that you want us to be in sync with you. So God, help us to get there through the power of your Holy Spirit. Mold us, change us, shape us to be more and more like Christ so that we see this life 
as if we're seeing it from your eyes, from your side of heaven. God, I pray for anyone here who's really struggling with unity. I just pray that they would seek after you and trust these relationships to you. I just pray for marriages in the room that they would find healing and wholeness in Jesus. I pray for those that are struggling at work. I pray that you'd empower them to be the feet of Christ, the, the hands of Christ, that they would be an incredible blessing to their coworkers, even to the ones who are antagonistic. Lord, I lift up those in this room that are struggling internally. The addiction is holding them back. Their own selfishness is keeping them from achieving. They've been trying to build their own towers for their own fame, their own glory. They want the attention. They want to be assured that they're worthwhile. And yet that's exactly what the cross says. That you loved us and gave everything for us. So we don't have to search for that assurance. We don't have to search for that, that, that longing elsewhere because we find it in you. And as we find our confidence in Jesus and his gospel, that's what empowers us to go and be that blessing. Then, Lord, I also just pray for the continued unity of Riverwood. I am so grateful for this church family, this, this church that you are building. I pray that we would experience tremendous unity here. Because where there is just great unity, amazing things can happen. And I believe you have dreams and plans for this church to make a difference in the lives of people around this community, this county, this region. So God, I just pray right now that you would protect this church family. Protect it from our sin. Protect it from our selfishness. May we turn to Jesus. And by being Jesus-centered, we would have a unity that makes others just stand in awe. I just pray for my friend right now in his church that is feeling torn apart because there is a lack of unity. And I pray that they would return back to Jesus. Pray for any churches in our area that are struggling with the same. They've gotten caught up about forms and they're forgetting it's about a person. And may you use us to be that encouragement to help people return back to Jesus. Let it start in us. May we be Jesus-centered people. So God, I pray that you'd be glorified now as we worship as we take communion, as we continue to seek after you today and every day. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So with that, we'll open up the uh, communion tables. Uh, if at any time during the song you want to go and take the elements, feel free. You can bring those back to you. You could take them right there. There's trash cans on the side for your cups. Um, if you're a first-time guest with us, I just want you to know that you are more than welcome to come and take this uh, table with us. We just ask that you be a Jesus follower because when we take this, we take that bread and remember that's his body which was broken for us. So when we eat that, we're doing it in remembrance of him. And when we pick up the cup, we realize that's his blood which was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So when we drink, it's all about worshiping Jesus. So if you're not quite there yet, you do not have to go. There's no pressure to go. Also, if you're a Jesus follower, I don't want you to feel like you've got to go out of duty to this table. This is about Christ. And so if you're wrestling with something, it's okay to sit and to pray as the song's going on. But if you need to take this, and this is part of your healing, this is helping to bring back that unity, then please don't just sit there. Come to the table. Let Jesus remind you how much he loves you because he gave his life for you. So let's go now and do this in remembrance of him.